Welcome to the StoreBrands Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Sleeter, Executive Editor of StoreBrands. Our guest is Dr. Christopher Simons, an Associate Professor at The Ohio State University with expertise in sensory science, chemical senses, food intake, and consumer behavior. Chris's research uses a multidisciplinary approach to understand the perception of food and how they are processed to influence reward and ultimately behavior. One outcome of this research is to identify the neural and physiological correlates associated with perception, liking, and food choice using a variety of methodologies, including human sensory testing, electrophysiology, and behavioral measurements. Another outcome is to leverage the knowledge gained from these types of investigations to develop new methodologies that assist in the creation of better foods. Chris, you, you mentioned, um, I guess, looking for ways to enhance or create some predictability. Um, and in that, I think you referenced uh, methodologies that may be a little dated. Um, any, any idea or any reason why the methodologies that companies use in product development um, maybe are a little antiquated and haven't been updated? Historically, we have utilized these techniques um, that we've grown up on and that have, as I said, sort of uh, as a sensory scientist, we're really good at asking questions, right? We may not be good at hooking people up to an electrode or to, you know, doing these other more sophisticated eye tracking or whatever it happens to be, right? And so um, having, I think the key is, and I think this is where the, the, um, discipline is sort of migrating or going to now is that I think I think the discipline recognizes we need to be open, we need to be changing, we need to be leveraging you know other disciplines, other technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of these different things to really do our job better. And so it really makes it really exciting because the 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 discipline's really evolving. And I think some of the things that we're doing are, are in the forefront of that. Some of the things that you know other groups are are as well. But it's it's, it's an exciting time. Um, one because it is evolving, and and two because I I think consumers are also you know they're they're demanding and expecting um, products that have a lot of sensory challenge, right? They want products that have no salt or no sugar that taste just like full sugar, full salt products. And that's, that's a really hard challenge, right? Um, so to respond to those, we have to sort of understand how people perceive things and how, how those perceptions then influence their product liking and product choices and, and, and doing it in the context of, of a lot of other, I guess, related um, elements is, is an important. So one of the things that we're really interested in in my lab is, is context and how context shapes people's perceptions and, and what they like, right? So as you know, and as I'm sure, you know, a lot of your uh, listeners know, um, when we do sensory testing, we stick somebody in a booth Right. And we'll turn on a red light and a gloved hand will push this plastic cup of whatever through a hatch in the wall. And, and then we use this information and we collate it across people. And we think that's going to be predictive of future product liking. The problem is we don't eat like that. We don't eat in a closet. We don't eat by ourselves. Right. And so we've stripped away a lot of contextual information that's really, really important. And, and the reality is when we 
are eating, we're not ignoring that contextual information, right? So I think companies realize that and they'll often do home use tests or they'll do on-premises tests and, and, and that's good. Um, the problem with those types of tests though, is that they tend to be really expensive and they tend to be done at the end of the product development cycle, not at the, right? Because they're, they are so expensive. So you can't test all of your products. In addition, they lack experimental control, right? So we send product home to people. We hope that they follow the instructions and cook it for, you know, three minutes and not 30 minutes. We hope that, you know, when they're preparing the product, they don't have a screaming kid, you know, who's got the flu or an earache screaming in their ear, right? So all of those other things that are completely unrelated to the food are going to influence that person's assessment of that product. Um, so... So we use immersive technologies and virtual reality. And so we can actually recreate very realistic, you know, so part of it is the technology has now advanced, right? So 10 or 15 years ago, the, the technology wasn't there to really be able to utilize immersive technologies like you can now. So I think this evolution is also a reflection of what sorts of technologies also co-evolve. But, you know, with our, with our systems now, you know, we can recreate these very realistic environments, um, have people test in, in you know, a contextually relevant but well-controlled environment, right? Because now I make sure everybody, you know, sort of goes through the same. So I have experimental control. And when we do that, we see, you know, we see improved data quality. We see better reliability. We're able, you know, so what people tell me they like today in a virtual, you know, let's say coffee house, they like, you know, three weeks from now. Whereas when I test in a booth, it's almost kind of random what they tell me they like. So, yeah. So, you know, I think things like that, where we start to understand how other, in this case, contextual elements influence product perception and product liking, it allows us to make better methods or, or, more reliable methods or, or methods that, you know, may provide insights that we don't have access to using more of the traditional um, methodologies. The, the method that you just described, and, and it's interesting because the traditional taste test is kind of the end of the end of the product development cycle right. where test, you know, and, and you and I talked uh, last week and it was like I'm, the Pepsi challenge ran through my head, uh, you know, set up a table in a mall, mm-hmm. taste two sodas, pick one, yep. Yep. Uh, which I think is, is been done forever and, and still done in a lot of ways. Yep. Uh, but you're really talking about a methodology that starts at the beginning of the process. And by the time you develop, even it's a prototype, that you can increase the percentage of that product being successful. Exactly. That's what we hope, right? So that we hope that as we develop these methodologies and this knowledge that you're able to incorporate them at earlier stages of that product development cycle, right? So, so maybe using the traditional methods, which happens now, right? We use those traditional methods and we end up selecting a product to go into a home use test or a final sort of taste test and, um, and we launch it, right? Maybe we chose the wrong one, right? So if we can get more reliable methods up front that are, you know, so they have to be cost effective, right? They have to be um, 
obviously reliable, but if we can incorporate those at earlier, maybe we make totally dis- different decisions on the products that we push forward, even at the earlier, you know, product development steps. And I think that, that, you know, again, improves product development efficiency. It decreases resource waste and, you know, um, wasted development dollars and so forth. So, you know, we're not, I wouldn't say we're there yet, but that's definitely a big, a big goal. For companies that are listening to this and thinking, wow, we have to change our product development process. And it's interesting in the world of private label and store brands in what we cover is that there are so many smaller companies. Not everybody is the size of a Nabisco or somebody Absolutely. like that yeah. who has the, the R&D dollars to do that. Yep. Um, how, do they get ex- how do they get started with, with something like this? They think, hey, we're, we want to develop a line of products for a specific retailer and obviously they want it to be successful. Yeah. But how do they start with limited resources to do something That's like this? such a good question. And, and I think it really, um, it's a multifaceted answer in my opinion. So I think in many cases, um, you know, these small companies, these startups, you know, they have to make decisions based on one or two people's opinion, right? That's dangerous in my opinion, right? One or two people's opinion. So what I like doesn't mean you're going to like it. And if I go on what I think is the best, there's a, you know, good chance that I might miss a, you know, a better opportunity. But the reality is oftentimes with a small company, they don't have, you know, opportunities or ways to necessarily engage a larger, you know, um, sample size, so to speak. But I, I think that's one of the key, one of the key things, right. As companies sort of, you know, we always, even when I was in, you know, industry in the flavor house and so forth, we used to talk about, you know, the people with the golden tongues and, and, you know, the, they, they would always talk about how, well, you know, just match what I'm, what I'm describing and it'll be successful. Not, not always. I mean, sometimes, yeah, but oftentimes not, not. And, and so, you know, people liking is a really interesting concept because there is no right answer of what you should like or have to like. And, and, and so in order to really get the pulse, you have to sample a lot of people. And I think that's one of the biggest limitations for a small company is, you know, independent of whether you do it in a, you know, immersive booth or, or a regular booth, you know, you, you have to have the requisite sample sizes, which is something to, to, uh, to overcome. I would argue, and this is one of the things that, um, you know, we're seeing from some of our own data, for instance. So when we do test in context, because people are more reliable, we can get away with fewer, um, fewer people, fewer panelists, right? So one of the one of the reasons that we have to use these really large, you know, thousand people or two hundred people sample sizes with um, typical consumer testing is because it's so variable and there's no right answer. And so, in order to find statistical significance, you have to have really big sample sizes. But with a, a much more reliable, less variable, so people are less variable when they test in an immersive 
or a contextually relevant uh, scenario, we can cut those sample sizes down, and that you know that has a an influence on cost and 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 so forth. Um, but but I, I think um, yeah, it's a hard question to answer because um, a lot of times the you know the restrictions that small companies have. Um, sort of preclude them from being able to to do some of the things that I would say are sort of best practice. Um, but I would, you know, I guess I would argue or I would hope that as they become successful, then they can start to incorporate more of those types of best practices um, into their development process and their design process. You brought up a word that I don't think it's used enough within when we think about especially consumables, function. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're also focused on taste. We want it to taste whatever we want it to taste like. Can you expand on what you mean by function? Yeah. Uh, and I think it, as you asked me that question, I think it may be even broader than what I sort of limited sort of think. You know, we often... So when I, when I first started thinking about this and some of my collaborators and some of the students in my lab, you know, I was really thinking of functional foods, right? So foods that provide some sort of quote unquote health benefit. And so, you know, my son, for instance, will um, eat these protein powders, you know, before or after he you know, goes and works out. And I mean, he opens the jar and it makes me want to gag, right? So they definitely have some strong, you know, sensory limitations, but he'll religiously, you know, drink it um, because there's this perceived functional benefit. So I think there's function can be, it can be something like that. It can be health related, but, but I also think it can be functional in terms of, you know, especially if we think non-food items, right? So functional in terms of um, the specific function that it's trying to um, to deliver. So I'm thinking, for instance, like cleaning products, right? So maybe it doesn't have the best aroma. So maybe in this case, instead of taste is king, we say, you know, aroma is king or something like that. So maybe it doesn't have the best aroma, but if it has a much better cleaning capacity, you know, maybe that's fine, right? On the other hand, um, you know, some of these items like, you know, the candles that people light to, you know, scent their rooms or those plug-in things, you know, maybe there it's sort of a combination of function and, and you know, so if it's not going to actually uh, aromatize the room in a way that's adequate, then it doesn't matter what it smells like, you know, on the other hand, you know, if it smells really, really good. And it's just in that little corner of the room, maybe that's good enough. <laughs> so, um, so I think it's really kind of dependent on the product. Um, and, and I guess what I would argue is that maybe function really is a reflection of expectation and both in terms of, you know, sensory expectation, but all of those other things that you expect that product to deliver. Right. Interesting. Um, Chris, as we, we wrap up, um, this has been a great conversation and I, I appreciate your time. Um, when you look at the work that you and your team are doing now, um, 
where do you see it going and, and what's next? It's a good question. So we continue to explore a context. Um, as I mentioned, we're also sort of interested in these, these trade-offs. We're doing some additional work. Um, so when we do traditional, you know, taste tests, we always ask people how much they like a product. Um, and I think that, um, that may be limiting. Liking is just one aspect of reward. You know, wanting is another aspect of reward. Satisfaction is another aspect of reward. They're related, but they're not the same thing. You know, satisfaction is really sort of the, it's, it's the outcome of your sensory experience and your expectation, right? Liking is really just kind of your sensory experience. And wanting, you decide whether you want something before you've actually ever even tasted the product, right? So that's influenced by marketing or somebody's, you know. So one of the things that we're really interested in is, are, are there ways that we can develop methodologies that assess these other aspects of reward? It's not as simple as asking somebody how much you want it. You know, it's, it tracks almost identically with liking. Um, wanting requires some sort of effort. And, um, you know, so, so how might we be able to develop techniques and technolo technologies that allow us to assess some of these other uh, aspects related to, to the reward complex? Another area that I think is really starting to become interesting is this the impact of the microbiome and how the microbiome in your, you know, body influences mm -hmm. sort of those post-ingestive, you know, after you've, after you've consumed the food, how those nutrients interact with your bacteria in the microbiome to influence pleasure and all of these other. And I think this is really an emerging area that is blows my mind, right? So now, um, depending on the bacteria that you have in your gut, you're going to, you know, perceive things differently and have a different sort of hedonic response to it. And, you know, is there a way that, well, I mean, we, we do know that the microflora and the bacteria that you have in your gut is influenced by what you eat. So if you change your diet, how does that now start to influence how you perceive foods and foods that you previous liked? And, and maybe that's a way of, helping to eat healthier and so forth. So I think there's just, there's really a lot of exciting things going on. And luckily, you know, everybody's got to eat. And so there's a lot of uh, really sort of exciting research to be done to, to better understand the human. Well, Chris, it's been an interesting conversation, and uh, it's a conversation that seemingly has no end. Yeah, uh, right. Because <laughs> the, the research goes on, and just when we think we have something figured out, yeah. the next curveball comes along, and we have to go back and figure it out. Yeah. So, um, but but I think that's what makes everything fascinating. Um, so, Dr. Christopher Simons at Ohio State University, I appreciate your time, uh, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great, I really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks for the invitation to join you. Great. Thanks so much.